Today's episode is brought to you by MetPro. Hey, do you want to improve your health but not sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is extremely difficult. I know it was for me until I found MetPro. The key is to understanding and mastering your metabolism. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want access to the tools their industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co, that's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. And hey, the Dose listeners will get up to one month free if you sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. More on MetPro later in this episode. On today's episode, Mike Etor. And that's, again, where the magic starts happening. The answers, as you know, Richard, the answers and solutions to almost every problem in an organization are always resident within the organization. All you gotta do is ask, and you have to have a culture where people are willing to speak truth to power because sometimes those answers and solutions are directly opposite to what Mike has said or what Mike prefers. And you have to be, you have to have an environment to say, well, I'm Mike and I'm the C-level guy, but I can be wrong too. And I'll at least listen to you. And if your idea, if it's at least as good as mine, I'm going to go with your idea every time. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life, as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. Man, am I excited to bring you Mike Etor on the show today, a retired Marine Corps infantry officer, a decorated combat leader. He also served successfully as a C-level executive in a company called K-Force, a publicly traded professional services firm with annual revenue in excess of $1 billion. Over the course of both careers, Mike developed a reputation for being an exceptionally effective mentor and developer of leaders. Throughout his military and business lifetimes, Mike was consistently recognized for his ability to organize, train, and lead teams that consistently produced outstanding results in dynamic and challenging, ever-changing environments. Much of his, his success in the Marine Corps and as an executive was the result of his willingness to invest a great amount of time in mentoring and development of other leaders. Yes, leaders developing other leaders. That is the goal. After he retired from K-Force, Mike decided to continue his lifelong passion for the pursuit of leadership excellence and helping others by starting the Fidelis Leadership Group which he now runs for the sole purpose of sharing his leadership experiences and helping others reflect on the challenge facing them. Three great books out there, Ancient Wisdom, Stoic Lessons for Self-Mastery, Principles of War for the Corporate Battlefield, and my favorite, Trust-Based Leadership, Marine Corps Leadership Principles or Concepts for Today's Business Leaders. Such an outstanding book. It's 574 pages long. It's on my bookshelf. I use it in my own consulting practice. It's that good. If I was ever going to write a book about the concept of leadership, it's this right here. Mike has done it with trust-based leadership. Great podcast, too, called the Fidelis Leadership Podcast. Put that in your arsenal, in your leadership journey. You're not going to be disappointed. And you're not going to be disappointed in this conversation. Two Marines talking about leadership. You can't go wrong. Grab a pen and paper and start learning something. Here he is, the one and only Mike Etor on The Dose. Mike, what a thrill to have you on the show. Welcome to The Dose of Leadership. Uh, thank you, Richard. Um, and then we talked a little bit before you hit record. I didn't tell you that I 
before I became a coach, I actually found your podcast. I, I was thinking about it and I'm like, let me see a name. And then I found your podcast and listened to a bunch of episodes. And I'm like, you know, this guy gets it. <laughs> and, uh, and I liked it, you know, and, um, and I reached out to you and said, Richard, I'm, I'm, th I'm LinkedIn. I'm Richard about thinking about being a coach and all of that. And you replied and said, Hey Mike, happy to help you, whatever. And then I had some health issues with, uh, I had to get operated on for carpal and cubital tunnel, um, on both arms. And so that fell by the wayside. And by the way, I got that writing that big beast leadership book. That's <laughs> yeah, sitting in front of you. So Trust-based uh, leadership, yeah. Yes, it came at great physical cost to me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I paid the price, literally. Um, but, yeah, I reached out to you, and, uh, and, and I, I used your uh, podcast as an example. I just think it's excellent. Oh, that's uh, so nice. I mean, yeah. and, and it's been yeah, – I remember you reaching out. And uh, God, I'm, that was so long ago, and it's yeah. hard, hard to believe I've been doing the show almost nine years, and and yeah. and been watching you. Uh, we've been connected on LinkedIn since then. I've been watching you kind of by afar, kind of watching you as you progressed, and the books come out, and doing the coach. And man, you know, if if we were using old tape machines, I'd make sure we had a plenty of tape because we could probably talk for hours about this yeah. two, two Marines talking about yeah. this stuff because. I mean, you get it. And we were talking, gosh, we were talking maybe 15 minutes before we pressed the record button. You know, some, we were both saying, and people who've listened to the show have heard me say that, you know, the Marine Corps, it didn't hit me until I got away from it because I was in the in the Marine Corps. I took it for granted. Um, Even if I think back, Mike, to when I was even in, I was kind of complaining about the Marine Corps at the time. You know, like, ah, oh, this I'm so tired of this bureaucratic stuff you know ah they don't i'm so ready to get out and go in the real world because the marine corps is so screwed up. i mean i remember thinking that sometimes not that the marine corps principles but you know just the kind of the everyday grind and, and dealing yeah. with stuff but then when i got away from it, i'm like wait a second here the marine corps taught me a lot about life and leadership that i was taking for granted I, the same thing happened to you was it a similar experience it did uh, maybe maybe not identically because i stayed in for I longer than i did yeah. 10 years i was in 24 enlisted and officer um and i'll tell you what was a defining moment for me richard was when i was a captain a, a brand new captain i was at paris island uh south carolina as you know one of our recruit depots and i started taking an uh, executive M mba mm -hmm. um, and i took a dual major business administration and management and of course i didn't know anything about business i was a phys ed major uh in in college um and i i went to college with two purposes in mind i was enlisted for four years 74 to 78 got out with two purposes i was going to go back to college or go to college and wrestle i was a wrestler and i was going to get a four-year degree and go back in the marine corps as an officer and i did that um so starting a, a, a master's degree in business, I didn't know anything. So I learned that I was fascinated by it. It was good. When we started the management classes, though, uh, you know, the Marine Corps has a, the heebie-jeebies. I did not want to be called a manager as a Marine. <laughs> right. I'd, I'd, right. I'd correct you. You know, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not an 04. I'm a major. I'm not an E5. I'm a sergeant. Right. And, and I'm not a manager. I am a leader. Right. You know, I lead people and manage things. So we have a little bit of a heebie-jeebies yeah. about that. But I realized very quickly when the guy started teaching management, he was really talking about our version of leadership traits and fundamentals.
basic leadership and organizational skills. Right. And I would say half the class were civilians from the local area. And I looked to my left and right. And now I'm now maybe 34 years old. And I'm thinking, my God, I learned this as as a Lance Corporal yeah. going to NCO school. But I saw these people, many of whom were successful businessmen and women, they were taking notes. And they're like, man, this is great stuff. So in that moment, I realized, ooh, management is leadership in the business world. Yeah. And as the classes went on, I was like, Mike, there's a place for you in the business world as a leader. You can learn business, but I got the feeling that I already knew enough about leadership and organizational skills to at least be adequate yeah as i started my business career and that that came to fruition so i i i had the same revelation as you maybe a little bit longer and all of that um but yeah. yes i and I, we talked about it earlier i joined the the business world i joined a publicly traded company in 1999 uh, they hired me to, specifically to start a leadership development program and specifically to bring in junior marine officers that had you know five to ten years of experience and uh it was a publicly traded company richard i was so naive to the business world i did not know what a publicly traded company was i, I just didn't know what it wow, was right so they they let me be the director of leadership development put me on the executive team right away and what an education that was oh man i can imagine then the dot-com crash hit and the bad news is we almost got delisted from the NASDAQ. We got a letter saying, hey, your stock's at a buck 50, um, goes below a dollar for three or four days, you're out of here, you're gonna be a penny stock. That was the bad news. The good news was we had so much attrition, people quitting and all of that, that there was opportunity for me. And every almost every week it came, Mike, uh, would you like to take over this department? And so, well, yes, I would, because it played to my, I realized quickly that it was leadership and organizational skills could buoy me, keep my head above water while I learned enough about the, those departments to supervise and lead them. And then fast forward about four years later, I, uh, I was promoted to C-level. And at that point I was uh, in charge, I was a CIO, I was in charge of the tech department. Mm -hmm. And, and I want to make sure we illustrate this. And none of this is to boast or build me up. It's it's a good uh, anecdotes. I Computers were new, Richard, when I left the Marine Corps. So people will fall off their chair when they hear this. Marines will. I never in my career received an email as a Marine. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? I only had a computer my last duty station uh, and my last billet. And I left the Marine Corps not sure how to save a file no kidding. i had to get the, i had to get a younger marine over every time if i had to forward an attachment i couldn't figure it out so that will tell you my technical acumen retiring <laughs> you, in 98 and here you are a cio yeah and here i am two years later and out of desperation they had fired two legit tech guys in a row as a cio and and they were fine people they just weren't good leaders and the department was failing and they said, Mike, would you give it a shot? And I jumped at that because I was a customer of that department and there were fine people in there. I told the whole crowd, I know you're surprised to see me. I don't know anything about tech, but I don't, I do know that I do know leadership and I think I can help with leadership and organizational skills. And those people, I said, all I ask is you give me a chance, have an open mind, just give me a chance. And they did. And the, the horsepower and the intellectual capacity that was in that group 
was all that was necessary to turn that from the yep. biggest liability in a company yep. to clearly the highest performing and most reliable back office department, I would say within 18 months. Yeah. And, and now I learned a little bit about tech along the way, but I, I was never a technician. Um, and so it's a, you know, I realize I'm rambling, but I think it probably validates no. a whole lot of what you said to on your other episodes. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking, I mean, similar experiences with, with me is, and again, they were all eye opening. And I think what's, what I want listeners to understand here, you and I aren't necessarily the sharpest knives in the drawer. We're not sitting here t- talking that w- we've got these unique, um, business acumen skills. It, I, the same experience with me, I walked in, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I had the imposter syndrome. I'm like, what am I doing? I don't even know anything about this. I don't know anything about shipping and receiving. I don't know anything about procurement. I don't know anything about marketing. These are all roles that I took and led departments of. And I did I did a, a, a C, I a, wasn't a, a C-level, but it was a head of a, a, a technology department at another organization, right? With a computer science team, engineers, computer engineers. And every time that they, those I basically worked myself out of a job because I love how you said there that all that was needed was that horsepower that was already in that room. It just needed to be unleashed. And that happened, Mike, every single time that I took over a department. Yeah. I was like, hey, I, you guys are the experts here, not me. I'd always say that. I said, I'm here to remove the big rocks yeah. for you, you know, but I'm going to, I'm, here's my expectations. I expect this out of you and I'm going to back you up a hundred percent. I got your back. And, as we work through, you know, and, and you probably experienced this too, just you go through and they're like, yeah, whatever, who is this college boy, whatever, you know, and, you know, but things would happen and I would be accountable. They, they saw those little micro, they weren't major or drastic or, you know, fate, life-threatening situations for the company, but they were important enough to where somebody had to be held accountable. And I would take on that accountability and yeah. they'd never seen it before. But that came straight from the Marine Corps thing and, you know, telling me from day one, you got to understand the difference between accountability and what it even means. And I just realized that most people don't. And when they see it, boy, that's when the loyalty and the, it happened a handful of times. I can think of different departments where I I had their back when they made honest mistakes and I had their back and we just created this, this powerhouse loyal departments. Yeah, no, my experience has been similar, uh, Richard. I think, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the the big book, Trust Space. Right, well, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at it every day. And yeah. I told you, yeah. I told you in the recording, I want my listeners to know that Mike sent me his book, Trust Space Leadership, which is, I think, is, is Mike, honestly, the, the most comprehensive and best book that everything I've talked about on this show for nine years and everything that I do in my coaching, it's all in this book. In fact, I even bought one of my clients this last week and said, here, you need to have this. And we're going to, some of the things that we're working on, we're going to, we're going to reference this book. So anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm flattered and thank you for that. Um, I wrote the book as a textbook uh, for my courses and training and seminars and it served admirably. It's a big beast. And so for anybody that's inclined to buy it, first of all, I appreciate their support. Secondly, don't try to read it from start to finish. Right. It really is an a la, a la carte. You go out and pick, see what interests you and all of that. That said, early on, I make a difference between leadership experts and expert leaders. And I reserve the title leadership experts for really a lot of the well-known gurus 
all of whom I've read their books, all of whom I've learned a lot from. I'm not knocking them in any way. They tend to be academics. They tend to have PhDs and they tend to have spent more time in the academic arena becoming leadership experts than actual hands-on. So, you know, to my experienced eye, I look in their resume and I see often minimal leadership experience in the trenches but they've learned so much they've mastered it they've got their pitch down their speeches and i it's a value i've read all their books and would be uh, not as good a leader today if i hadn't so i well i have two graduate degrees in business administration and management i don't have graduate degrees or any formal degrees in leadership or organizational management or whatever you want to call it in the business world but i do have over 45 years now leading, learning about leadership, developing other leaders. And at this point, while I don't claim to be a leadership expert, I do claim to be an expert leader. And I believe with my, I believe I'm at the height of my game uh, as far as learning about leadership. You know, I retired, Richard, at age, I think 57 uh, from the corporate world. And, you know, I had done well. I had, uh, you know, achieved, a, I was a named officer in a publicly traded company. So great for Mike. I, w I did well. Once I started teaching and coaching, and I swear, Richard, there's not a, a week or two that goes by when I read something. I'm like, how did I not know that? Like, how <laughs> right. did I never hear that tech? So I realized the journey's never over. Right. Now, that said, much like you going into those departments, I tell everybody, you know, General Motors won't call me, but I think they should. And if they put me in charge of General Motors for three weeks, at the end of those three weeks, I'm confident enough to say, you know, this guy doesn't know anything. I mean, he's never led anything remotely as complex as General Motors, but we're better. Because he came in, he organized us, we had great organized meetings, and he asked the three big questions. And the three big questions are, what should we start doing? what should we stop doing and what should we do differently and if you ask those questions of people in any size team and the culture is such that they will respond honestly richard they have the horsepower the experience and the wisdom to tell you what they're doing that they really shouldn't be doing what we should start doing and what sops and processes we should do differently and then my job is to receive that feedback, get consensus, and my main job as a leader is to equip and enable them yeah. to enact, enact those changes and sustain it. So it's, as you know, once you've seen the light and you know this stuff, it's really not that hard. It's just about bringing the best out of people who really do know the topic well and removing obstacles and giving them the right tools, weapons, systems, whatever That's the right. case is. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said any better. And that, I think that's, and sometimes I feel like I'm not that effective even when I, you know, when I've had my frustrations with working with clients and like, why, why aren't they getting this? Why am I not communicating this well? And, and it's so easy to understand. It's difficult to put into play, I think, for a whole host of reasons. I think it's it's difficult to people to, I mean, it's an age-old business problem, Mike, right? I mean, it's like for companies, for eons have been saying, well, this is what we're going to do, but then they never end up doing it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and for me, it's like, well, I want to get into to the why this is. And for me, the Marine Corps gave me that light because the Marine Corps is all about, it's a bias for action organization. It's all about execution. 
And that's what's missing so much in the corporate arena, in my opinion, for what I see. It's just we just get bogged down with, well, we say we're going to do these things, but we don't do these things. And I think we don't do these things primarily because we don't embrace this decentralized mindset or this decentralized culture that was so ingrained in us in the Marine Corps. Because think about the power behind that. And I know you know this, but I'm just repeating it. I think this is why we don't do the things we say we weren't going to do, why it's, why it's endemic. It's because to, to get to people, you have to have the middle and below, which is the, in the Marine Corps, let's say, you know, that's the enlisted below, right? That's the engine of the organization. And we all know that in a chaotic situation, it doesn't get any more chaotic than combat, which is the, the business the Marine Corps is in. They know that to be effective, to be that composed force in that chaotic situation, then the middle and below has to be have a mindset of asking for forgiveness instead of permission. Now, that yeah. will be chaotic if you don't have the second piece of that puzzle, which is where the senior lead, where the officer corps comes into play, where their primary goal is to maniacally communicate the intent of what we're trying to accomplish and why, right? You get those two together. The what and the why, the intent, with the and allowing the engine of the organization to to own that and unleash it and come up with their own, for the lack of you know, for the most part, where they own that execution, you're unstoppable. Yeah, I am, boy, Richard. I tell you, you read my mind. I mean, I agree entirely. And I'll use a personal example or anecdote. Um, I was fortunate enough, I don't even know if you know what this award is, but the Marine Corps awards something called the Leftwich Trophy. Mm, I, uh, I've heard of that, but I don't know what it's for. It's, it's, a, it's a leadership award that goes to one combat arms officer per year. Big, beautiful bronze trophy sponsored by Ross Perot. Oh, yes. I remember that. Leftwich, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Leftwich mm-hmm. was Perot's Naval Academy That's right. roommate. Mm-hmm. Leftwich had already received the Navy Cross in Vietnam and then was a recon battalion commander. And his policy was, while I don't, as a lieutenant colonel, go out on recon missions, if one of my teams is in trouble and has to be extracted, extracted in, in extremis, I'm going with that chopper. And he used to do that, and his troops loved him. And I, I've heard people say this guy was going to be the commandant of the Marine Corps someday. And I believe him. And uh, in fact, General Mundy, who, who was the commandant and presented this award to me, served for him and said, clearly, he would have been the commandant. He was that fine of an officer. Yeah. Well, they extracted the team and the helicopter got shot down. Every, everybody died and perished. And Perot actually wanted to do this trophy. The Marine Corps gave him permission. He went and found the sculptor of the Iwo Jima Memorial. No kidding. Yeah. And brought him out of retirement. His name is Felix de Weldon. And if you look at the trophy that I received, it's it's identical style of sculpture of the Iwo Jima guys, right. Ira, Ira Hayes and those guys. So anyway, so here I am as a captain. I'm at TBS. I get this award. They fall all of TBS out. And you would be a graduate of that school. You understand what that means. I mean, there's just right. legions of lieutenants. And right. of course, they're looking at me as if, oh, my God, this guy, you know, first of all, I'm a captain. And to a second lieutenant, a captain is... Is, right. is is God. Well, now I get this award. So they're thinking I'm Thor or Zeus or something. <laughs> all right. And I and so I was compelled to talk to them about it all through my three years and say, listen, first, I'm so happy to I'm, I'm gratified to get the award. Second, I knew 
30 or 40 Marine captains off the top of my head that if their name came out on that message traffic saying they had received that award, I would have said, good for him. He represents every single thing that award is supposed to represent as well. And then third, I told them, look, I think I think I was a very good captain. I think I may, maybe even better than average. I said, but I want you to listen to me, lieutenants. Here's what I think I was really good at to your point earlier, I said, I was excellent, if not among the best, at unleashing the power of corporals and sergeants. Yep. And so when I told him that, I would throw up a, a graphic, this is the old days where we had slide projections, yeah, right. slide yeah, projection, the, the overheads, yeah, overheads. Yeah. So I'd tell the Lance Corporal, throw the overhead on with a thing, and it would be a rifle company TO. And I'd say, and they have circles, here's the officers, and there's five of them. And here's the staff NCOs. And there's maybe eight of those. I said, so you got eight officers and staff. In. And I said, a lot of officers bet on the officers. A lot of officers bet on the officers and staff NCOs. Let me tell you what Captain Etor learned as a former corporal sergeant and staff sergeant. I bet on, I, I, don't get me wrong, I wanted the officers and staff NCOs to pull their weight, and they certainly did. But I, I think that, that in the TO at the time, it was like, 65 or 72 corporals and sergeants. I said, now these guys right here, if you can get half of those corporals and sergeants doing what they need to do on their own initiative, bias for action, following your intent, that lieutenants is when the magic happens mm -hmm. and, and you'll be in a position where you have to hold them back, but you'll never have to kick them in the ass to get them going. And that's a lesson that I learned as a as a, a very young NCO, a very young staff sergeant, very young drill instructor. You know, I was a twenty year old drill instructor. Wow, and so that's young. That that that's very young, and all I was the only non Vietnam vet in my class. And so think about the. Uh, there's a chapter in the book. The Marine Corps trusted mm -hmm. me. And it's about that story. And so think about the trust the Marine Corps had in a twenty year old non combat sergeant. Okay, go to DI school. Let's see what you got. And so they trusted me and they gave me a reputation to live up to. And I like to think I lived up to it. Well, I learned, I never forgot about that. I never forgot what it was like to be the corporal sergeant, staff sergeant that had people trust me. Mm -hmm. And I would have died rather than let them down. And business people, supervisors, managers, department heads, whatever the title is, whatever the rank structure is, they will die too. They will, they'd mm -hmm. rather die than embarrass their department. And so you can see, I mean, I'm already spitting at my screen and all that. I love that. I'm so passionate <laughs> about this stuff because you're hitting it right, Richard. It's not the executives. Mm -mm. You can have the best team of executives, but it's real. And if there's an executive level, then a VP level, then a director, manager, supervisor, team lead, it's the director and below. If you Absolutely. can get those ladies and gents on fire, and pointing their weapons in the same direction at the same target, ooh, the magic happens. Oh, you're unstoppable. Yeah, I love that. I, uh, you're speaking music to my ears because I love finding those kind of, particularly in the corporate arena, finding those real influencers. They Number one, they don't know they're, they're the influencer, <laughs> you know, and – when you give them, not, I also learned too that not everybody wants that empowerment. I kind of assumed that the whole, like everybody wanted it. <laughs> I right. learned the hard way that not everybody right. does. Right. 
But at the same time, I don't have to get everybody to your point. If I can just get enough brand ambassadors and enough hard chargers, enough type A's, I made the mistake my early on in the corporate arena, I tried to get all my, my C's and D's into B's and A's and that was wasted energy. So then I started focusing all my energy on the A's and B's. And what I found is that the C's and D's either moved themselves out. You know, I just set a level of expectations up here. And if you didn't meet them, you either would force yourself out. They would force themselves out or they would yeah. they would force themselves up into the B's and A's. I spent too much time trying to, I kind of went against my Marine Corps. I learned in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And I learned, and I yeah. saw that in the Marine Corps, right? There was this, you didn't spend a lot of time trying to, to, to bring, right? I mean, Am I saying that right? I mean, if I think back to my Marine Corps, you're so much longer and so much more more Marine-esque being in the infantry side as, as me being an aviator. But even on the aviation side, it's like to be an aircraft commander so quickly, right? It's like the expectations, they never dumbed it down for me, right? So if you weren't performing, yeah. that's what I loved about the Marine Corps. Right? So I was trying to say, if yeah. you weren't, these were the expectations. And if you didn't live up to them, I'm sorry, right? And sometimes people don't like to hear that. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree entirely. Now, in the Marine Corps, the promotion process is a big filter. So if that's someone true. has to Peter, that's right. if, if you have a, sar a sergeant or a captain that really doesn't aspire to work hard and reach the left next level, chances are he or she's not going to reach the next level. The, and the, so they attrit. If they do reach the next level, they're usually given a chance they don't do well, and then they take them, put them off to the side, and staff billets, and 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 really, you know, jobs that need to be done. Drug and alcohol officer, but they're not often for your front runners. Like right. We need a we need a lieutenant colonel over there. This guy's never going to be a squadron commander for us. We don't even think he wants to be, but he's a mediocre leader at best. We're not going to give him a squadron. We have meat eaters out there. We'd rather give a meat eater major that squadron than this lieutenant colonel. He doesn't want it. And even if he does, we're not going to give it to him. So we're going to put him in a job where he he probably wants a nine to five job where he can go home every day and not deploy. In the business world, I have had your experience too. I focus on the A's and B's and I tell people it's okay to be a C, but you have to work hard and you have to be what we determine to be adequate and we still need you to lead yourself right. and others when appropriate. What I have found was when you go into an organization and start getting them to what I call breathe fire, when you unleash the pro and they start seeing it, the magic happens. I have found that people at all levels, including the executive level, often silently say to themselves, I see what's going on. What's going on is good and it's right, but it's causing me to be to work a lot harder and be a lot better than I actually want to do. So I'm out. And, <laughs> and they, they kind of deselect. And I, I've had, I had a guy one time tell me when I took over the IT shop, $45 million budget, 180 people. And we set about reorganizing and just let's go, let's go get them. Operation Enduring Freedom just started in Afghanistan. So I dubbed this project Operation Enduring Excellence. Uh -huh. And we we just SOPs and you know, all that. And he looked at me, said he it was an exit interview and he said, Mike, what you're doing and what you're causing to be done has needed to be done in this department for years. And you're doing the right thing. Now that said, 
I don't want to be in a big IT department like this. I don't want to have to document things. I don't want to have to do the things that you and your leaders are about to require us to do to be a large IT department at a billion dollar company. I want to go work someplace where it's a small company, maybe 12 million a year or something like that. And it's a three man IT shop. And we don't have to document stuff because we just talk to each other. I want that kind of, and I realize, hey, good for you for realizing what you want and don't want. And even better that you took action because this train is moving in our department, this train is going and you're saying, I, I don't want to go for the ride and I certainly don't want to go to the destination. And so when I say people select themselves out, I have found Richard in the business world, not everybody aspires to excellence and you know mm -hmm. and all of that some people really do aspire to mediocrity and doing as little as possible to getting their paycheck and i respect that but i can't have that in my organization right i can't i can't and and usually it took care of itself people realized who everywhere around us people me around people are on fire I don't want to be on fire. I don't want to be have four burners on fire. I want to just have slow boil on one of them yeah. and chill out and chill out for various reasons. Yeah. So I know I have no ill will against those. No, 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 no. That's I, that's what I'm trying to get across too. But that's that's what I found too. I was always I just assumed naively yeah. that everybody wanted to breathe fire because I wanted to breathe fire, right? And it wasn't always the case. And we'll be right back after this message. Hey, you're like me, you're wanting to improve your health but never sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is difficult. I know it has been for me until I found MetPro. According to MetPro, the key to seeing results is mastering your metabolism. At MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one -on -one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimes. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide business professionals, athletes, weekend warriors, and everyone in between the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable name in sports, entertainment, and business. They've helped thousands of individuals like you and me transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've been using MetPro for five weeks, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I finally feel like I got it figured out. This onboarding program was great. The intuitive app, I can't say enough of. It helps me plan my meals, gives me a shopping list. I'm eating the foods I enjoy. And most importantly, I got increased energy and I'm seeing weight loss. I couldn't be more thrilled with MetPro. Recently, they launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. Look, this isn't food logging. It's not a tool or a workout app. The MetPro app allows you to track, analyze, and learn what your metabolism responds to best. And that's the key. That's the thing I've never had before until now. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want to access the tools that industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash dose. That's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Best of all, listeners will get up to one month free when they sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. And now, back to the show. You know, one thing I was thinking about, too, I didn't want to lose thought, going back to um, we always think it's about the executive. Another lesson that I learned, because you'd see this in the Marine Corps, because you'd have these, I don't know what, you'd, you'd have a squadron commander or a commanding officer. You know, he's there, what, two years, three years? Max, maybe, you know, you get these turn and then you get a new guy, right? And it's usually maybe the XO or something like that. So you always have this kind of turnover of leadership always. It was kind of consistent. 
And sometimes you'd get a really good one and sometimes you'd get a really bad one, right? And what I always appreciated was the ability for the engine of the organization to continue to, to, to handle its mission objectives. Now, granted, when you had the great leader in there, it was really great. And sometimes if you had the bad leader, it was it could be dysfunctional or really wrong. But by and large, even if it was a dysfunct, my point is if you even had a dysfunctional leader or you had, you know, a left witch type guy up there, um, it still chugged along and you did some amazing things, even with that yeah. dysfunctional leader. That was my point. And so uh, I've gone into a couple situations in the corporate arena when I worked in the corporate arena and when I've consulted in the corporate arena, like, oh my God, we're so glad you're here because this guy that in this leadership team is so dysfunctional. And I'm like, you know, I'll do my best to try to change him. That's how I would tell. I do, I'll do my best to try to change them. But this person's, you know, it's got 55, 60 years of life stink on them. I, I can only do so much. They're going to have to do it themselves, yeah. right? Yeah. My yeah. question to you is what are you going to do the next time this behavior is displayed, right? What are you going to do the next time this leader, say, loses his temper? That's what I want to know you're going to do, you know, because you, as the middle of the organization below, have tremendous influence over what happens. You can choose how to react to that situation, right? And how you choose to react is going to impact this, it will impact this organization so much more than what anybody from the C level up is going to do. Because I've got people who are customer facing, I've got people who are impacting the brand that nobody sees the C-level, but they do see this front-level employee. They do see this. So what are you going to do the next time the general comes in and throws a grenade on the table after all your plans? What are you going to do? Are you going to jump on the grenade? Are you going to throw it in your friend's lap? You know, what I want to see you do is watch the grenade, pick it up and slowly put the pin in and then ask, ask the senior leader, Hey, sir, I see this is important. What would you like me to do in a composed force? Does that make sense? I know I'm talking a lot here, but that, no. that I got so much mileage. And again, yeah. this is straight from the Marine Corps. Yeah. Because if I had that bad commanding officer, it made my job harder because my shit string just got a lot bigger and a lot more heavy. Yeah. But yeah. right? That, anyway, that's, that's, I just, what are your thoughts on what you've heard me say so far? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I, I want to go back to what you said that, that w what I tell, I do, uh, you know, a lot of just coaching for transitioning veterans. And I tell people that have been in the military a long time, I said, you know, there's one huge difference. Now, first of all, I say, look, leadership in the business world I found is almost identical to leadership in the Marine Corps. And I'm sure the army and the Navy people are people and they will yep. respond to good or bad leadership identically. I said, now that said, there is one huge difference. When that bad CO that you mentioned, Richard, as you know, when he's in charge of a battalion or a squadron, people can't quit. Right. They, they just have to suffer under that guy That's for two right. years. And sometimes their collective misery and waiting out those two years and trying to do damage control on a bad leader is what unifies the command. That's you know, they're, right. un they're unified. Like we got, we got a terrible leader. We have to buck up. And that's what you're saying. The system, the institution kind of propels itself. Now, as you know, in the business world, that's not true. That's People true. have the option to say worst leader I've ever had, not getting anything done, 
abusive, corporate's not doing anything about it, or the guy is from corporate, I'm out. And so what I've told people is, boy, if we could put like a, a leadership DNA pixel in every leader, you would find out where where he's a and then how many have fled the tribe because not a lot of companies evaluate executives and leaders on their retention and attrition rate of of their leaders and of their teammates and often in fact every time richard every time a bad leader finally gets exposed when they when he leaves or they have to fire him or her when they do the post-mortem they always find bodies stacked in the closet. Like, geez, this guy has had 15 people quit over the last four years. And he fired 23 of them. Like, nobody's ever good enough for this guy. And you know what? It's this guy that was the problem. I would say 95% of executives and senior leaders don't have that level of awareness while it's happening. Yeah, it's true. So I encourage senior leaders to have a little bit of an alarm bell set, whether it's HR or somebody. We want to be, me as the senior executive, I want to know every time people in certain roles exit the organization, voluntary or involuntary. I assume that they're legit. They got better offers or they just want to leave or they had to be fired or whatever. But I, I supervise, you know, the S and BAMPs is just to make sure, do I have a problem in the leadership ranks? And, and so I don't let that fester. I don't let those bodies get stacked up. And listen, Richard, I've had this happen to me too. I mean, I, I know what to do. I teach it, but it's happened to me. Oh, I it's have, happened to I, me too. Yeah. I've had guys leave and in, in, in hindsight, oh my God, Mike, that's your fault. You let this guy kill people for 18 months yeah, and I'm- you had a blind spot. And you didn't see it, and and you're as responsible for the exit as he is. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, I've certainly have in, in, disclaimer. People should know. I should have said this up front, just because we we're talking about this. And you know, you talked about. I had that in my bio, leadership expert. Actually, when you I read that in your book, I actually changed it because I'm like, yeah, that's how I see myself too, expert leader. Yeah. I didn't know. I changed that on my LinkedIn bio to the exact same thing, an expert leader in this. I don't feel like a, yeah. I'm a guru. And I've certainly had my share of bumps and bruises along the way. I've made some yeah. huge mistakes, particularly in the corporate arena. I learned. Yes. And I was like, how did I not? I, I talk about this and then yet I still did it. That's just, that's how subtle and elusive sometimes this stuff is, right? If you're not paying attention. Right. For me, it was, um, it was, I don't even know what you would call it. Probably the most glaring one. That, and it talks about going back towards intent was I worked for this hotel company and, and we wanted to institute a program. We we were big on safety because it was an extended stay hotel and, and it was maniacally clean and safe was kind of what our internal brand was. So it was extended stay, low price point. Extended stays, low price point attracts a seedier element. And so yeah. to fight that, we were going to be, we were going to overwhelm your senses when you walked in about how clean this place was, right? So that was easy for me from coming from the Marine Corps standpoint. And I was the operations, VP of operations. So that was easy for me. But the safety one was a little more challenging. Like, how do you do that? How do you enforce the safety? And it certainly started with the property manager, but then we came up with an idea that worked well locally. Is like we just had local beat cops started hanging around. 
and they would we would have a parking space form with you know which of their police department logo right there and they would just come and they would hang out like they and they loved it and we and it started with a relationship with the chief of police and they're like man these beat cops love this type of stuff they like to go into businesses and know that they're making a difference and so that and it, and it worked and so my boss said hey let's institute this nationwide and my mindset with it was and this is where I was going with where I've, I made the mistake I was like I remember saying oh my I, it's another thing that I want to burden my property managers with I'm going to do this for them. I don't even want them to think. I'm going to create this nice binder with laminated pages, a checklist. All they had to do was just follow my checklist. And so I mirrored, I mirrored it to what worked with the city I was in and for the hotels that were in my city, and it worked well. So I spent all this time, all this money, and I would even give it to my property managers. I would go travel. and like, hey, I made this for you. You don't even have to think. You just follow the checklist, right? And I can't even believe this was coming out of my mouth. And of course, it was an absolute failure because I didn't take into account like every city's different, every jurors, every location is different. Yeah. And so I would go and visit, and these binders would be sitting up on the shelf with dust on them, and they didn't even they didn't even do it, you know. Yeah. And so then I I changed it, Mike, to where it was like a one pager. This is my intent. My intent is that you have a regular relationship with local law enforcement, you know, and a couple other objectives and expectations, but it was one pager in one pages. It was short. It was basically bullets. And then people came up with all these ideas, like every place. I mean, once I did that and I gave them the freedom to do all these things, it, they came up with these crazy ideas that I, amazing ideas that I didn't, I couldn't even imagine. So anyway, that was my leadership lesson about the power of commander's intent. Right. And, and then trying to do it, everything for the, for my folks. Yeah. Well, I love it. I mean, I've had, uh, so don't beat yourself up too badly. I've had some, some colossal failures and I'm like, what, what were you thinking? You know? Right. And so to that end, to illustrate to the audience of the power of intent, with you talking about that, if you would have told me as a manager, Richard, the intent is now here's the issue. The situation is, we draw a seedier element. We would like to have a police presence. We can't hire security guys, and we can't hire police, but we would like to have a police presence on our property habitually. So you, Mike, in Cleveland or Tampa, what do you think, what, what's it take? Do you need to provide coffee? Do we need to set up a little refreshment area so that cops know they can always go there for coffee <clears throat> and donuts? would they would they respond well if we let them use our fitness room so come in and lift weights mm -hmm. could we save a room for them and to where if they just wanted to come in and lay down for a half hour or take a shower in other words every city would probably be different but everybody would come back to you richard and say here's the six things i'm thinking about that'll work right here in kenosha wisconsin right. well they they may be entirely different but what they were doing, the tactics and techniques and methods are all aimed at accomplishing your desired intent. Yep. And, and listen, I mean, I wish you would, you probably wish you'd have done it that way, but let me tell you, I have starred in that movie where I have done the <laughs> binders and done SOPs. And at the end of the day, I was violating my own rules. Right. Tell them, tell them what the intent is. Tell them to come back to me with their proposed plan. And if it's good, 
how can I help fellas? What do you need from me? Yeah. Well, Mike, we need added budget because these guys are going to be drinking a lot of coffee and donuts and all of that. You got it. Right. You got it. Uh, you, you hit it on the head. Yeah. That's, and that's exactly what happened. The co- the coffee and donut. And it was, that was what was beautiful about it is that everybody came up with different ideas and it was, it was unique for their location. Yeah. But it all yeah. fed into the intent that we were trying to, to accomplish. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, when it's the, it's the three big questions. I, I always go back, you know, I call it <clears throat> in the book, Richard, I refer to something that I call the leadership epiphany. Everybody knows the epiphany. They know what it is. It's in the Bible, the epiphany. Yeah. And the leadership epiphany and most leaders have it. The best ones have it earlier. And I, I had it too late, but not as late as some, but anyway, the leadership epiphany is that day, that moment when a leader realizes that he or she is not expected to be the smartest person in the room, is not expected to have all the answers, is not expected to have experience in everything uh, that happens within the organizations they preside over, and that saying things like, I don't know, and what do you recommend are actually seen as oh, signs know. of strength, and, not weakness. Yep. And the earlier a person has that leadership epiphany, the better chances he or she has of being effective more quickly and maximizing their leadership potential. Absolutely. I think you're saying, telling that story. I just think back to that time, that kind of epiphany, even even a smaller one, but even the Marine Corps, I remember walking in saying, asking for permission for something. And it was, and I had a, a kind of a mediocre CO and then, then we got a really good one. And that transition from the media, really good one was like, whoa, this is, and it was such a great place to work. I mean, just little things of like walking in from the old one. Cause the old one was so kind of top down. He had to run everything past him. Yeah. And then you'd walk in and I'm like, sir, I was thinking about, doing this and he would look up because what do you think you should do? You know, he would just ask the question, what do you think is the best thing to do? Well, I think the best thing is do this. And he goes like, okay, then get out of my office. <laughs> you know, and he said, just yeah. go do it. Yes. I remember I broke well, on the, go ahead. Well, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, I, no, no. You're, 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 you know, we're obviously communicating here as if there's a fiber optic. I know, down road, right, you know, right. I mean, yeah, we're yeah. speaking, we're, you know, people that are listening to this and watching it are saying, you know, I, I have a suspicion these guys are from similar backgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But, you know, it goes to show people that are watching and listening in, you don't know me and I don't know you. Our careers did not overlap. We didn't even come remotely close to serving in the same locations and environments, yet we are talking the same sheet of music. Mm-hmm. And because we have the benefit, the unfair advantage of having been taught from a common book, a common SOP, common philosophies, concepts, tactics, and techniques. So I love that. And I think I've I've learned, my people have learned both in the Marine Corps and the corporate world, that when you go to Mike Etor and you go in his office and you say, hey, there is a problem the first thing Mike is going to say, well, well, what do you recommend? Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you propose? And so don't go to Mike with just a problem and not a solution. Yeah. And if you go to Mike with a problem and a solution, he's going to listen to it and he's going to say, that's a pretty good idea. Have you batted it around 
with people in the chain of command. In other words, your staff NCOs, your managers, your supervisors, your peers, have you, are you bringing me a proposed solution that harnesses the collective wisdom of the organization? Well, naturally the first few times like, well, uh, no, I have. And I said, listen, it sounds good, but go see what the rest of the lieutenants say. Ask the staff NCOs in the business world, go ask the rest of the department heads, ask the, come to me and I guarantee you, you'll come to me with a better plan. Now, what that what that meant, Richards, was in both environments, after a while, they both knew. I got a problem. I'm going to propose a solution. And, Mike, let me tell you how many people looked at this yeah. and, and gave their input. And I'm like, sweet. And 99% of the time, I would look at it and say, wow, I could have never. I could have never given you guidance or direction of that level of quality. <sighs> what yeah. do you need? Can I get you coffee? What do you need? What, <laughs> what, how, right. how can I help? How can right I help now, you? I just, I just need to step out of the way and I'm there to remove obstacles and give you guys chow and, and, and water if you need it. I'm here to, to enable you. And that's, again, where the magic starts happening. The answers, as you know, Richard, the answers and solutions to almost every problem in an organization are always resident within the organization. Yeah, it's already there. The All you got to do is ask mm -hmm. and you have to have a culture where people are willing to speak truth to power because sometimes those answers and solutions are directly opposite to what Mike has said or what Mike prefers. And you have to be, you have to have an environment to say, well, I'm Mike and I'm the sea level guy, but I can be wrong too. And I'll at least listen to you. And if your idea is as good as mine, not doesn't have to be better. If it's at least as good as mine, I'm going to go with your idea every time. Yep. And I think it's important to point out too that sometimes that transition, particularly if you're new, you come in there. It's going to take some time to get, particularly depending on what the culture was prior to, to yourself. It's going to take them a while to get. They're yeah. not going to. We that goes back to that assumption that people will, will just be an open book and tell them when you ask them, "Oh, well, what do you yeah. need?" And they won't. They'll, they'll withhold yeah. it. It takes a while to kind of build up to. Oh, he yeah. really. It takes a couple instances where you make a mistake or where you were wrong and how you respond to that. Hopefully you yeah. respond to it with confidence. Like, man, I really gooned that up, Yeah, man. And you, and you're just comfortable with it. Like, it's like, Hey, yeah, I made a mistake. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't fatal. And then you start, that's when I noticed that where I, you see that in the cockpit a lot flying. And that's what I loved about flying and aviation. It was like, there's, they're like little microcosms of leadership experiments in a, in a short frame of time, right? A yeah. guy does a bad landing or a guy misses a call or does something. And how they respond to that mistake is, is telling, right? And, it, and I just kind of transpose that into the corporate world on longer arenas. So it takes – when you make that mistake and how you respond to it, that can really accelerate. It's kind of like almost – when that mistake happens where you are wrong, boy, that gives you a, a great opportunity to kind of accelerate yeah. this kind of yeah. open book or this, this trust-based organization. You yeah. know, I've heard you, I, I, first of all, I agree, Richard, and I've heard you, now this goes back years, I've heard you talk about this specific example of being in a cockpit and, you know, you being a captain and the, the pilot is a lieutenant colonel. Mm-hmm. And so there's rank involved. And for those that aren't in the military, that's a big difference between a captain and lieutenant colonel. He's your squadron commander, potentially. Yep. And But you know he has done something wrong or is about to do something wrong. And you are compelled in that cockpit to tell him, sir, sir, we got, sir, we got to do this. Sir, 
sir, you know, you have to, you have to tell them, you know, otherwise the aircraft is going to crash potentially and all of that. And so I, I just read a story last night about an aircraft pilot goes right to what your story go your analogy richard an aircraft pilot it was a foreign guy i want to say he was a perhaps a middle eastern airline mm -hmm. and he could be heard on the first leg of a flight berating the co-pilot as they were ascending it was like he was quizzing the guy what about this what about that oh, you're an idiot you don't know anything and he just dogged this guy for the whole flight well, they land, do a pit stop, get new passengers. They're going to take the second leg of the flight, and there's some weather. And this guy says, the pilot, the arrogant guy says, hey, co-pilot, put these waypoints into the GPS or the navigation system. We're going to go around this weather. And long story made sure the waypoints he put in caused the plane to crash into a mountain. Yep killed everybody mm -hmm. but they heard it they got the black box and what the theory was was the co-pilot was so damaged his esteem had just been so badly damaged that he either knew and didn't say anything or he just was beyond rational thought and just said yes skipper whatever you want we got it yeah and yeah. his his arrogance and for whatever reason that co-pilot failed to speak up it killed hundreds of people it's a thing so, that it's a it's a trait goes to human humans are weird and they would rather and the, the, I've I've seen I've seen and listened to the tapes and they've done it even in simulators where they show it where it's not where no one really crashes but they'll do tests on people they'll put a jerk in there in the left and that no one's expecting it and they'll drive it in they will rather drive it into the ground than than piss off this overbearing personality yeah. and it's it's a it's insidious thing and, and it doesn't have to be in a plane it's being in a, in a corporation and yeah and it's just I, I what helped me get through that and it takes it takes some intentionality but i got it from the marine corps it's like it's not i had a great officer tell me early on you know he said it's not your right to challenge me it's your obligation and i think a lot of people think I know a lot of people who have no experience with the Marine Corps or the military in general is that they think they see these boot camp, you know, yeah. things and they think that we're, we're stripping people down to be mind them robots. And it's really the exact opposite. It's, it's to bring you to humbling so you can build you back up. But boy, when you get in a real fleet, I, for, for when I've seen it firing at all cylinders, it, you were encouraged to challenge, right? Yes. And you do it with respect. You do it with tact, which is another leadership trait, right? Which doesn't get talked a lot about in the civilian word, the tact piece. But there are tactful ways to tell the lieutenant colonel, hey, sir, you're about to crash in the mountain here, you know, or you're about to do something stupid. Yes. And we want that. I want that. I can't tell you how many times I've been flying and the most junior guy on the plane, you know, because we're sitting there jaw jacking, talking about sports or whatever. And he heard the radio call that we didn't. He was doing his job and we weren't. And he spoke up, you know. And yeah. man, you want that. God, you want that. So and so, yeah. you got to be conscious of that as a leader. Is like you got to yeah. challenge. 
I was trying to remember what was that guy's name? I don't know. Did you ever do much with the the air wing? His name was Assassin. He was a Cobra guy. I can't remember his name. White McCorkle, General McCorkle. Did you ever oh, know? Yeah, Fre- Fred, Fred McCorkle. Fred McCorkle. Yeah. yeah. I worked for him at the wing, and I was all the majors were getting out, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, I keep telling these stories, but I mean, I think this yeah, you appreciate this story. Great. But, but, I was at the, they put me at the wing near the end of my first fleet tour because all the majors got out hired by the airlines. So it was really a major's billet to be like the KC-130 representative in the squad, in the wing. And so I, I reported to a Fulbright colonel, you know, and that Fulbright colonel had all, so he had representatives for every type of aircraft, you know, on the West Coast. And I was the KC-130 guy. So when things would come down from the Pentagon, like, what do we got? I had to be there and say, hey, here's what 130 assets you have, Right. And so I was the only captain in, you know, in there. Everybody else was a major lieutenant colonel. And McCorkle had a chief of staff as a full bird. And one day they came to me and they were going to do um, uh, embassy evacuation in uh, Eritrea, I think. And it was behind the scenes. And they, so the, the, they wanted to know. Every, they brought everybody in. What assets do we have? How, can we? They're looking at us to kind of get these people out of this embassy. What do we have? And so I was in there and I had three planes in Jordan at the time. This was the late nineties. And, yeah. And uh, I said, well, we got three C-130s in Jordan and there was a soccer field or some kind of field at kind of a strip. And they said, well, we could probably land a couple one thirties there. And I was in this room and everybody's talking and you know how it is when like, this is a real world thing. Everybody's excited about it. Everybody wants to participate, you know, generals wanting to know his things. And I was concerned I didn't know about landing in this soccer field because I was afraid that I don't know. I was afraid it was going to be too soft. Sure. And that they would get stuck there. I didn't say anything. And it kept going around and it looked like they were going to one thirties, but then eventually what happened was they found that the, the Mew was, and they had a couple 53s there they could get there. And so that's what they ended up doing. They ended up using the 53s and yeah. they did this embassy evacuation, right? No one ever knew about it, right? And the press never knew about it. Right? It's one of those things, right? Right. So a week or so after that had happened, I was the chief of staff had come by, the forward colonel, and he was talking to me. And he's like, yeah, that was – and we were just talking. And I mentioned to the chief of staff, I said, yeah, I was – what I just told you, that I was concerned at the time. And so the chief of staff colonel, he's like, well, why didn't you say anything then? I'm like, I, I don't know, sir. I just – things were happening so fast, and I just didn't – I didn't say anything. He's like – well, maybe the next time you should, you know, because we didn't use it. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Yes, sir. And he was really, this. we really got along, got along with this colonel. Yeah. Anyway, about 30 minutes later, I got a call. I got summoned to McCorkle's, McCorkle's office, right? And so he's telling me, he's asking me when he goes, well, why didn't you tell me this? And I'm like, no excuse, sir. I just was overwhelmed by the situation, you know, with what was happening and this and that. And he's like, and it was like the disappointed father speech, right? He goes, I'm so disappointed in you. You know, <laughs> yeah. he goes, it's not your right to challenge. It's your obligation. He goes, there are lives at stake here. And I'm, I don't know anything about the C-130. You do. You need, he goes, your obligation to tell me what's going on, you know? Yeah. And he just laid this lesson down. And I felt like this big, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't yelling. He yeah. was just talking in this kind of like disappointed father tone. 
And I'm sure he was doing it intent on purpose to try to get yeah, the point across. But I never forgot that, you know. And it was yeah. a great leadership lesson in me about this. And I take that into the cockpit. It's not your when I fly with somebody new. It's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation. Anyway, that's a long story. I know, but in, I in, love it. I, and you know, there's a there's a first of all, I love it uh, because he is telling you it's not only your obligation to pipe up that in his mind he has developed a culture where you should feel free to pipe up and you're not going to get squashed for it right the a great business uh analogy to that is when alan mulally took over ford I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this anecdote i'll share it for the audience you know he took over ford ford is losing billions of dollars mulally is an airlines guy he was a CEO of a major mm -hmm. airline. He goes in, he doesn't know the auto industry. They bring him in first non-Ford family member yeah. as a CEO, first one. So that's a bold thing. He goes in and they have uh, a red, uh, a green, yellow, red reporting system, kind of like a traffic light. Well, he goes in first three or four meetings, everybody, all the senior executives, all of their departments, all of their divisions, all of their cars, their projects, it's all green lights. And he stands up after about the third meeting, fourth meeting, and says, you know, I don't understand it, guys. I don't understand it. Everybody's got green lights, but we're losing billions of dollars per year. How can that be? Please, level with me. I really, I want to know. Otherwise, I can't help you. My job, I don't know cars, but I know leadership, and I know that my job, I can get resources to bear. I can shift money and resources from one thing to another to help you out. So please, accuracy and reporting. The next meeting, so everybody stood there. They, he said, everybody looked at him terrified. The next meeting, it's green light, green light, green light. And then finally, a brave soul stands up and says, okay, I'm Joe Smuckatelli. I'm in charge of the, I don't know, F-150 division. And I got a, a yellow light here. And Malali said the room, you could hear gas, like, <gasps> like no one had ever remembered anything other than a green light. You know, they, they had red lights and yellow lights, but those were private. Those were handled. <laughs> right. you know. Yeah. So that means the CEO knew it's kind of like a, a, a mag commander. Uh, uh, wing commander getting told, oh, all of our birds are up. We got a 90% readiness rate, but the pilots reporting it are like, uh, that's not true. It's really closer to 70%. But if we had to, we'd cannibalize them. But right yeah. now it's, we're saying 92, but it, you know, everybody knows it's really not 92. Well, he stood up, explained why it was yellow, explained what the problem was and what he needed. And Malali stood up, started applauding, clapping. Really? And he told everybody else, stand up, applaud. And so they were giving this guy a standing ovation. And when it ended, he said, thank you. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Thank you. Thank you for having the courage to tell me the truth. Now, what do you need from me? And, and so he showed him, I'm not going to bite your neck out. And, and, and so he said, well, I really could use this. I really could use that. And to be honest with you on this issue, I don't know what to do. I've, my, my, we don't know what to do with this problem. We need help. And so he, he gave him help and all that. Well, as the meetings went on, more and more green, I mean, uh, yellow and red lights started to appear. And he said within a few weeks, the dynamic of the executive team changed. They realized Malali really does want to know the truth. And we're not going to get shot in the face for telling the truth. In fact, 
we're going to get thanked for it and he's going to bring resources to bear and we're going to learn from these mistakes or we're going to tackle problems as an organization so pretty much what McCorkle told you uh, and pretty much what any organization needs to be done but it's the burden of proof is on McCorkle and Mullally and any other leader to cultivate a climate where people feel comfortable in truth and reporting and then I'm not sure about this plane landing there and I got to tell you boss this project that everybody's looking at it's not going around that way we're, we're behind we did not meet the weekly goals we're, we're a week we're at least a week behind right now maybe two I need your help yeah it's so, it's so powerful and I think an even more kind of to, to piggyback on what we're talking about here which I think is even more important which I think is People have to understand this part of it. Yeah, it's your right to challenge, but it's not your right to challenge. It's your obligation. Like you get that shot, right? So you're standing there. And I, I'm curious from your aspect from from an infantry officer. You know, there's a great scene in that I thought they got right in, uh, what is it, American Sniper? Is that the one with Mark Wahlberg? Is that the what, Luttrell story? Is that is that, that movie? Uh, Lone, Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor. Lone yeah. Survivor. Yeah, American Sniper is the Bradley Cooper one. So Lone Survivor, there's a great scene there where the, the SEAL team, there's three enlisted and one officer, and they get exposed, right? And the, the old man and the kid and the goat find the SEAL yeah. team, right? And they, they tie him up, and they're sitting there, and they do this debate about what do we do now? One guy says, "Well, we just need to kill him, and because mission's important, right? Let's let's just schwack all four, all, all schwack the old man and the kid, and let's go on with the mission, right?" The other's like, "What are you talking about?" And they're arguing. Are you kidding me? We're we're going to be on CNN. We're going to be in you know Fort Leavenworth from here on out. You know, you can't do that. And they're arguing right. back and forth and getting pretty heated. So they're challenging each other. And then after about five minutes of this kind of debate, the officer comes in and says, "Okay, this is what we're going to do." Right. So he's listened to everybody and he says, mission scrubbed. We're going to cut him loose, let him go. Mission scrubbed. And we're going to go up the hill and we're going to call for extract. And once that decision was made, everybody and all that debate was from that point on, everyone's like, okay, that's what we're doing. Right. And so that's my point about this obligation. Right. Once the decision is made, you have to carry out, even if you vehemently disagree with what has just happened here. You have yes. to carry it out like it's your own, right? And that yes. gets missed all the time. And I think that that is the byproduct of so much dysfunction or the toxicity that you see in a lot of organizations. If you can avoid yeah. that and if you can get people to understand, it's like, okay, I've had my chance. I've, me yeah. and Mike got behind doors and me and Mike are cussing. I'm like, God damn it, Mike, this is what we're going to do. And Mike's like, no, Richard. And then you're my leader. And if I say, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying, but this is what we're going to do. I have to, when I walk out of that room and I cannot be bad mouthing your decision, right? That is the hardest, I think one of the hardest things to do as a leader. Yeah. It's a, it's a, well, you're right on it. It's a, uh, that is something that has to have a zero defects mentality associated. And I, and so from an entry infantry perspective, I learned something that I teach in the business world and I call it slap and smile and so um contrary to what people would think and even non-infantry marines when you're behind closed doors and you're talking about things tactically 
um, the colonel doesn't always have the best idea. Right. And it can be very heated. And then when, but he'll listen, you know, they, they almost all listen and all of that. And somebody, the S3 may be saying, this is a, this is an Amtrak mission. And the Amtrakers like, I don't know about that. This, the border's too shallow and all of this. This is really a helo mission. And we start fighting tactfully and, and forcefully. Right. The colonel listens and a technique that a lot of them use is they slap the table. <laughs> I've made my decision. It's option B. And option B is the helo mission or the Amtrak mission or the rubber boat mission. But he, he says, all right, enough. Quiet. Everybody calms down, sits down, slaps the table. It's option A. Let's meet in an hour. Give me your best uh, you know, input and all that. From that point forward, we follow the cardinal rule that Marines never, ever see officers arguing. They never see them as divided. And so the colonel has slapped the table, and when that door opens up and the officers and planners walk out, everybody is smiling. And even though I wanted it to be a helo mission so my company could do it, it's an Amtrak mission. And so my first question to the Amtrak company commander is, Larry, what do you need from me? How can I help? How can I help? Yeah. And, and I wanted option B because I was the option. I wanted to go attack these guys. But it's an Amtrak mission. And so, you know what? It's option A. It's Amtrak's. Option A is my option now. We leave that room. I gave it my best shot. We leave that room. And everyone in the organization is compelled to support that option. And I teach that in the business world, I love that. Richard, as I'm sure you do. And... That, that little euphemism, slap and smile, is one of the that. most popular things I teach. I I've talked to people that. and they said, Mike, we still, we still joke about that. It's been two years since you are here. We still say slap and smile, slap and smile. And if you can get an organization to do that, of course, that, that's an indicator of a lot of discussions and leadership development and mentoring and culture all wrapped into one. But boy, you cannot have... Any executive team leave the office and leave the executive boardroom and they're divided because if the marketing guy is going to pout because yep. the IT department's getting the budget, well, what do you think? Those departments are not going to mesh well together. So anyway, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but again, no, but everything you, you did or learned in the military uh, has, a, has a business corollary. Absolutely. I love that. I've never heard the slap and smile and out and that, that helps kind of tell that story, what I'm trying to get across. You're absolutely right. And I've seen, and you and I have both seen that in the business world where it works and where, it, again, I think that's where a lot of that dis, dissent and dysfunctions or silos get made in those slap and smile moments. How, how the people, you know, it's the person who's not smiling that walks out of there. Right. And that's when the silos can get built. That's where the dysfunction, the yeah. seeds can get really planted. Oh, and to amazing. clarify a bit, Richard, you know, in the corporate world, because most of your listeners, I think, are in the corporate arena, how that affected me in the business world is, you know, I just got a bunch of money as the CIO. We're going to do this neat project. We're putting in a new system. We just got $12 million allocated to us. It's going to take us 18 months to do this systems implementation. My guys are loving it. You know, this is... They love it. They exist to do these big projects. This is not business as usual. We're getting ready to bend electrons. I love this stuff. <laughs> well, 
now in the course of business, it's decided that there's business opportunities out there and we're going to do a marketing campaign. And guess what, Mike, to do this campaign, and we are doing it, the, current, the, CEOs, the CEOs decided, and we're gonna take 7 million of your 12 million. And so you need to tell us how that's gonna affect your project, but that's gonna be done. Now, if I pout and leave and go back to my guys, you're not gonna friggin' believe this. It just poisons everything. Yes. So I fight, like, oh, don't do that to me. You really need this system. Like, no, Mike, the decision's made. I said, okay. Well, now I go back and say, fellas, great business opportunity presented itself. Looks like we're going to shift some money to marketing. They're going to be the main effort. Now tell me, with only $5 million, what what can we do? How's the timeline and the deliverables and the quality of the product affected? But I don't go back and bitch about the CEO and curse the marketing yes. guy. Because often the main effort arrow pointed to me. When I got that $12 million, it was coming out of somebody else's pot. So it's yeah. ebb and flow. And the intent is to be a unified executive team and accomplish the corporate goals. I love it. I love the way you explain things. Can you believe we've been talking for an hour and 12 minutes almost? Can you believe I love it? it? I love it. I mean, I, you know, as you can tell, it's my passion. I, I know, know man. I can that. talk talk to you forever about this stuff i gotta tell you just again the trust-based leadership book i'm holding up for the video of people watching the video it is a beast a beautiful book i'm glad i got the hardcover version i told you i ordered another copy right and then i gave the soft cover version to the yeah to my client <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's it's such a great book mike and again it's one of those good it's a go i've already used it in my own coaching practice I've already used this a handful of times in the short time that I've had this book and I'm going to continue to do it because you've encapsulated everything that I've talked about here on this show for nine years, everything that I've tried to incorporate in the corporate arena for 16 years when I was there. Yeah. Um, it's all in here, man. And then also we didn't even talk about, I love this one cause I'm a big stoic. I'm a big stoicism guy and I love this ancient wisdom, stoic lessons for self mastery. Yeah. That's a great, uh, you've encapsulated that in a, uh, a nice, concise way because stoicism is so powerful. And I, it, it is a huge part of my leadership philosophy. And then I haven't cracked this one yet. The principles of war for the corporate battlefield. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't even got to that one yet because your other stuff is just taking up my time. <laughs> so, yeah. But thank you for these, these books. Thank you for all your effort for writing these out. Um, I think you're just, this is great stuff, man. And again, of course I'm biased because I'm, you're a Marine like me, but it's, I mean, it's everything that we, we live and breathe, right? I mean, how can people learn more about this? How can people connect with you? How can people engage in your services? Well, first of all, thank you for your compliments and I, uh, I'll take them. It's always writing the books were uh, a challenge, but, uh, I want to be immortal, uh, Richard. And I, and I know people will look up like, who's this guy? I want to be immortal. My mission statement is I want to help develop leaders throughout my life and after. And after, if I want to do it after, my thoughts and experience, everything that's been poured into my mind by others has to be captured in writing, digital form, videos, and all of that. So to that end, I have a pretty big following on LinkedIn. If people want to find me, Mike Etor, E-T-T-O-R-E, on LinkedIn, I post there almost daily. 
Um, I have a Facebook page, Fidelis Leadership Group. Um, I actually, on my website, FidelisLeadership.com, they can learn more about me. But I, I actually do a podcast, mm -hmm. Fidelis Leadership Podcast, a very, uh, very distant shadow of what you're doing. <laughs> but I've managed to get some good people on there. Yeah, and for I sure. think if, you, if, if people are interested in, in, in leadership, it's worth listening to. And uh, my, my contact info is on any social media. So my phone number is out there. My email's out there. When it comes to leadership, I, I love doing it. So I uh, appreciate your support. And um, I guess uh, if you give me one request is please come on my podcast. As oh, a guest. definitely. Yeah, we can continue. Yeah, I absolutely love to. I would be honored to be on there. And like I said, I think you're just knocking out of the park with your brand. And again, this isn't about necessarily the brand, but I mean, just your intentionality behind it. Uh, the the beautiful works with the book. The podcast is great. You guys need to put Mike in your um, leadership quiver. He's an arrow that you definitely will use time and time again. So I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Mike. And I'm so glad that we finally connected even deeper. And I hope we can continue and, and continue to grow this relationship. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, my pleasure. And let's do it again. And Semper Fidelis. Semper Fidelis. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dosa Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.